0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians once again, Philippians chapter 2. And looking at verses 19 and following, the travel arrangements. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. This is really uh, indicative of Timothy's preparedness for ministry, and it's not Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology. It's spiritual preparation in terms of a shepherd's heart that is humble before the Lord and serving the Lord. Everybody else in uh, Paul's seminary at this moment is not yet ready. It says in verse 21 for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. All right. before we begin this morning let's take a moment for silent prayer calling upon our Father in his faithfulness to lead us in the word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to set aside our distractions, to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless our time in your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, so Philippians 2, 19 and following. Titled this the travel arrangements portion after we got through the three exhortations the make my joy complete exhortation in verses 1 and 2, the have this attitude exhortation in verses 3 through 11, and then the work out your salvation exhortation in verses 12 through 18. We then come to travel arrangements. And really the two that are focused on is Timothy and Epaphroditus, but it also includes Paul himself and his pending travel arrangements as well. And some of this may seem up in the air. Some of this may seem, um, you know, iffy. And that's, that's called life. We're all that way. We're creatures of time, bound by time. We don't know the doors that God's going to open. We, we have preferences. We have uh, intentions. But then we have to leave things in the Lord's hands. And so uh, we can, and I think it comes across uh, in several expressions here in this paragraph, things that Paul is hoping to, uh, to, to do and then uh, the humility that he has to leave it in the hands of the Lord. Paul hoped to send Timothy to conduct a spiritual appraisal of the Philippians. And really that's what it comes down to. Timothy is like a spy. <laughs> but he's a, he's a James Bond kind of a spy that introduces himself right up front and says, you know, Bond, James Bond. You know, he just tells everybody who he is uh, first thing. Uh, Timothy is going there to assess their circumstances. Paul wants to learn about their condition. And uh, you see that there in verse 19. I will be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So that means Timothy has to go to Philippi, spend some time there, teach them and everything he's going to do there in the ministry, and then return back to Paul in his location, which I think is Ephesus. Going to return back to Paul's prison location and report to Paul concerning the Philippians' spiritual well being, concerning their spiritual condition. And that's, uh, that's extraordinary, and that means that Timothy is not only qualified to teach, but he's qualified to evaluate. He has leadership uh, uh, training whereby he can evaluate uh, what they've got going on and, and, uh, and all the rest. And I appreciate that. In fact, this section is very uh, this segment of Philippians is very similar to First Corinthians four, verses 17 through 19. Uh, we can take a look at that. First Corinthians 14 through 19. And these are the things we think about when we think about, well, what's the condition of Austin Bible Church? What's, uh, you know, It's a spiritual answer, it's a spiritual condition because the church is not the building, the church is the people. I like to answer the compliments when people say, uh, you've got a real nice church here, and I say, yes, I do, and the, the building is also nice, you know. And that's just a reminder. Uh, of course, they were talking about the building all along, and I knew that. But I like to answer that way just to remind them that uh, the church is the people. It's the brothers and sisters that are growing together and loving to- together and serving one another. All right, 1 Corinthians four seventeen through 19, um, he says, "...for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church." And now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. And in the investigation of the Corinthians' condition, he's going to find out exactly who those false teachers are and what kind of demons they're listening to, uh, because that's the kind of power that uh, can sneak into a church. You've got to root it out. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power so what do you desire? He gives them a choice here. (laughs) This is like the easy way or the hard way. You know, he gives them a choice. Shall I come to you with a rod or shall I come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness? And he gives them the, you know, door A or door B, uh, if you will. So uh, similar to uh, what we have here this morning in Philippians 2, as Paul is sending Timothy to do that assessment, to find out their words, to find out their power, to find out their condition in in the Lord. Then we deal with this in the Lord Jesus, as it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And that sparked a lot of questions. What do those words in the Lord Jesus mean? I mean, can't you take those words out and doesn't the sentence read perfectly fine? I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. That's a valid sentence. So what's the difference between I hope to send Timothy to you and I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly? Those aren't empty words. Those are actually words with great impact, great, uh, I think, uh, profound impact. What does it mean to do something in the Lord? And what are all the things that we can do in the Lord? There's a list of things that we can do in the Lord. And so what does it mean to do something in the Lord? Like I greet you in the Lord, all right? So if you shake somebody's hand in the fellowship hall, is that greeting them in the Lord or is that greeting them in the fellowship hall? How do we we know that what we're doing, we're doing in the Lord? And what then uh, makes that happen? Well, as we see here, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. What it does is it subjects personal desire to the headship of Jesus Christ. So I hope to send Timothy, but if Jesus Christ has other plans, well then he's the head of the church. And so he's free to adjust my plans, to adjust my thinking. He's free to, uh, to provide something better than what I was asking for. See, like the uh, Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayer, which is really not accurate. It's, it's, it's an answered prayer, but it's a better answer than what you were asking for. See, so hoping in the Lord Jesus, it subjects personal desire to the headship of Christ. And uh, the example both here and in First Corinthians 4.19. Such a caveat should always be clear in everything that we do. Uh, like it says in James, don't say, I'm going to go here and do this. Say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do here. I'm going to go here and do this. That we're living one day at a time and we are walking humbly before the Lord. I don't know that we need to look at all of these verses, but the pattern is there. And uh, the idea is that we're subjecting everything we do to the Lord. Acts 18, 21, taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. And we should have that as our thinking. That's why we say here, there, or in the air. We don't know. We don't know if uh, if we're going to drop dead tomorrow or, or last night or whenever, that each day is a grace gift. And so we need to uh, to operate on that basis, that this is our final day to lay up treasure in heaven because God's going to call us home any moment when that trumpet sounds. Ro- other examples, Romans one ten, Romans 15.32. Uh, I think we can let that go here for this morning. Things we can do in the Lord. I even made a handout for this. I don't do a lot of handouts, but I made a handout for this and, and spread it around because uh, you can know things in the Lord, you can be convinced in the Lord, you can receive a saint in the Lord. You can work hard in the Lord, greet others in the Lord. You can boast in the Lord. In fact, you're commanded to boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself. You can even birth a child in the Lord. You can marry in the Lord. Did you know that? You're supposed to. 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine. you can enter a door of ministry in the Lord. You can have confidence in another in the Lord. You can have self-confidence in the Lord. In fact, that's the only way you should have self-confidence. Uh, obey, your ch- obey your parents. It says children in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is the first commandment with a promise, Ephesians six one. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. Trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord. And so this phrase, because it's used so often, really, I wonder if it then disappears because it's used in so many places that we just kind of gloss over it and don't think about it. But it's a phrase that that has meaning. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Every jot and tittle has significance. And so it's not just an empty expression. Live in harmony in the Lord. We request and exhort you in the Lord. Command and exhort you in the Lord. Have charge over a flock in the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Benefit from another in the Lord. And then finally, die in the Lord. Okay, with the dying grace. So we had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun with that slide and went through that as well. All right. The consequences of sending Timothy there and back again was for Paul to learn of their condition and for Paul himself to be encouraged. Very discouraging when those that you're ministering to are not walking in the Word of God. They're not applying what you're, what you're feeding them. But when they are applying what you're feeding them, when they are walking in the Word of God, there is no greater encouragement for, for a teacher, no greater encouragement for an apostle or a pastor or a spiritual leader. The point is, is to be encouraged. And it is a there and back again uh, journey as part of how we track uh, the authorship or the place of authorship That there are so many round trips that are spoken of here, realizing that these aren't just text messages back and forth, this is actually feet walking, right? Or getting on a boat, but traveling back and forth. And in the ancient world, how long did that take? How long did it take to go from Philippi to Rome if if the authorship came from Rome? Or how long did it take to go to Philippi to Ephesus? Much shorter and much more uh, realistic and believable that all of these back and forth trips um, were between uh, Philippi and Ephesus rather than Philippi and Rome. It's virtually impossible to have all of these round trips from Philippi to Rome. Uh, if you want to go with the traditional date and if you want to go with the traditional um, place of writing, then that's it's a tougher thing to prove in any event. So uh, uh, he's going to hear about their condition. Rather than asking the Philippians, how you doing? rather than sending a letter saying, hey, write back and tell me how you're doing, he's actually dispatching Timothy to look for his own, for his sake, with his own eyes. Rather than asking the Philippians for an inadequate response to the how are you question, Timothy is tasked with a spiritual and pastoral inspection to provide comprehensive response to the how are they question. In other words, he's not asking the Philippians, how are you? He's asking Timothy, how are they? And he's going to accept the answer that Timothy provides him. And Timothy is the inspector at this point. He's Paul's only trainee qualified at this time to undertake such a task. And that too, I think, points to an earlier authorship rather than a later authorship. By the time uh, Paul gets to Rome in Acts 28, I mean, he should have plenty of men fully trained and ready to go forth and do all kinds of things. Uh, But this early in the uh, process, that's not the case. paul's encouragement and this is uh, noteworthy as well when we're reading this that i may be encouraged of your condition um this word for encouragement here is not our normal word it's not the park that we're accustomed to for the exhorter encourage comforter it's not the typical encouragement that we will normally find uh it, it puts the eu prefix in front of psucheo for a, a soul application to be well sold uh the imperative here um was used on grave inscriptions. It was a farewell message, well sold as you greet, as you uh, entrust somebody's soul to the afterlife, and uh, kind of an interesting idiom at that point. All right, moving on to the selfishness that's described here. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, personal selfishness. And it is a, it is an obstacle to ministry. Ministry must be sacrificial and personal selfishness will destroy ministry capacity. They all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Selfishness destroys ministry capacity. Timothy is Paul's only student who is kindred spirit. And this is... Uh, uh, a linkage of souls, if you will. Uh, I, you know what an isotope is. Uh, you have iso as a prefix, and so this is like Paul's soul. He, Paul has a psuche, and Timothy has a psuche. So they each have souls. It's like Timothy's soul is just an isotope of Paul's soul. They're uh, they're virtually the same. They're very uh, harmonious in uh, in their approach, and so we have the term used here and used in the Septuagint from Psalm fifty four thirteen. And really, this is, a, this is fundamental to the training. This is fundamental to beyond the academics, beyond the Greek and the Hebrew and the systematic theology, beyond all the rest. That what's uh, Before you lay hands on a man, we're, we're warned, don't lay hands on a man too quickly. Otherwise, you will share in his guilt. And that's a, that's a dire warning. So um, this, has to be, this has to be critiqued. And this is uh, kind of one of those subjective things that when an older man is, has, a, has a perspective for the younger man and how ready is he? Or is he still uh, too young? Is he still uh, does he still have too much pride? Pride is a killer in the ministry. So you've gotta you gotta make sure that that's been trained out of him before uh, he's ready to take a flock, before uh, he's ready for the laying on of hands. So at this point, Timothy was the one and only among all of Paul's traveling companions. And so as you read through the book of Acts, as you kind of track. Uh, the other companions that he had, whether it was uh, you know Barnabas or, or uh, Luke or Aristarchus or some of the other men that traveled with him, Titus and others uh, that traveled with him at different places at different times. Some we know never enter into ministry. Demas flames out. Demas uh, leaves and because he's worldly minded, he goes to Thessalonica and he quits the ministry. He's done at that point. And there's others. Um, that are spoken of very properly that they were suited for service and he sent them forth. Tychicus was a powerful agent that got sent all kinds of places. Uh, But at this moment, Timothy's the only one. Timothy shares Paul's genuine concern for the Philippians, uh, the according to you things, the according to you things. Psalm 54, 13. I'll look that up. It is a Septuagint, so it could be sometimes those verses are off. I'll look that up. Yeah, sometimes the verses are off and sometimes the versification is different between the Septuagint numbering and the Hebrew numbering and the English numbering. You can end up with three different numbers at that point. But thank you. These are the kind of typos we're hoping to catch before uh, we publish the notebook. The concerning you things. Remember in chapter one, we had the according to me things. Uh, In Philippians 1, 12, it was the according to me things. Uh, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, my according to me things, those are just my circumstances, right? The according, we all have according to me things. Every one of us has personal circumstances, and they're the according to me things. Well, now he's asking about the according to you things, uh, asking about the uh, the Philippians and their well being. When I learn of your condition or their interests, and so when you examine the Merimnao vocabulary, Merimna, Merimnao, Ah Merimnas, these uh, these are uh, verbs and nouns and adjectives. These are expressions that speak of worrying, that speak of concern. And this is where we, we kind of play church, you know, we, get, we use our vocabulary properly uh, because worry is a sin, right? And so I don't want to say I'm worried for my flock because uh, the mental attitude of sin of worry is wrong. Uh, so I want to say I'm concerned. I have a concern for my flock. I have a concern for my children living in the Word of God. I have a concern for uh, brothers and sisters that used to have more of an appetite than they seem to have t- these days. And we learn that when we use the word concern instead of the word worry, that uh, we have a, a sanctified expression that means that it's legitimate, it's biblical, it's not uh, a mental attitude sin of worry. Okay? Now we do that in the English by differentiating between worry and concern. Uh, the problem with that whole idea is that the Greek uses the same word for both. It's the same, same merimnao, it's the same merimna, it's the same amerimnas that we have here. Uh, so context will then determine whether if you're in the text, context will determine whether the worry is a, is a, uh, a mental attitude sin. As a, Really it's a lack of faith is what it is. It's a sin of omission. You're commanded to walk by faith, to trust in God. And so when you start worrying without faith, well then that's, that's your sin right there, is not walking by faith. But when you're concerned in faith, then it's not carnal at all. It's uh, it's appropriate, like godly jealousy, godly worry, godly uh, these other attributes that are perfectly valid when it's spirit led, spirit empowered, and uh, and dealt with on this on this basis. All right, so. You can break it down uh, we've got worry in the bad sense concern in the good sense and uh, listings of verses that use the same vocabulary so this is where you know learning greek doesn't necessarily help you because it's the same words the same expression you just have to tell by context whether or not it's uh, legitimate or illegitimate i think the proper uses uh, are, are useful i'll skip by the bad uses for this morning but second uh, corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 when paul is discussing this he uh, he puts it in a in a uh, juxtaposition with other things that uh i think most people would not write it the way paul writes it because he goes through a list of hardships and then he just brushes them all off to the side he talks about um Starting in verse 23, he talks about far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Far more imprisonments, plural. That's, that's multiple. That's more than one. That's, that's an, in addition to the, the single night in the Philippian jail we know about in Acts 16. Many, many other imprisonments beyond that. Beaten times without number. When you can't count how many times you've been beaten, you've been beaten a lot. Often in days, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's the Mel Gibson event. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's before the shipwreck we read about in the book of Acts. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. All those things he had to deal with in the ministry. And he's going to brush those all aside. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, apart from such external things. See what he just did there? He says all of that, those, that's just external stuff, external things. The circumstances and details of external, you know, existence. There is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. That's the real difficulty of the apostolic ministry. Who is weak without my becoming weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And the impact this has on spiritual leadership when the flock is, uh, is not walking right, when they're falling into sin, falling into weakness. Paul says that affects me. That they become weak, I become weak and uh, the impact of it there. All right. God's design to supplant selfishness is selfless service, modeled and passed on generationally. God's design to supplant selfishness. He's got a great way to root out selfishness. Selfless service. Serving others. And watching others do that and then emulating that. When Paul is describing here Timothy serving him as a child, serving his father, that's the pattern. That's what we deal with here, in, and that's why I believe a local church seminary has a huge advantage over a, a graduate school type seminary, because you get that multiple generations in, in that dynamic as at work. That's how I learned under Ralph, and that's how other men have learned under me, and that's how it works. And it goes on and on and on. So you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. And so he's learning. Now this is why it's key: you got to have faithful men teaching faithful men, because uh, if you have a selfish older man, that he's going to teach that selfishness <laughs> to selfish younger men. See, but you got to have selfless service being modeled, being displayed, and then faithful men can teach faithful men. See, and so it's not only is it here, but Flip over with me to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. This is designed to be the, uh, the pattern for the church age. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of many witnesses. That means we're all together. We're all assembled. The flock is assembled. It's not a, a separate school from the church. That the, They're watching this kid grow up. They're watching Timothy grow up. See, let No one look, despise thy youth. Their, his progress has to be evident to all. And so, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That key adjective there is faithful. You've got to have faithful men passing on to faithful men passing on to faithful men. And, uh, and that's the design. And this is a great way to root out the selfishness by uh, modeling the selfless service. And uh, passing that on generationally. And so back in Philippians then, you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And and that's the the example. You know he's faithful. You've seen him serve. You've seen him serve in all the various capacities that he has served in all the different stages. And you know he's going to be a faithful pastor. Why? Because he was a faithful deacon and he was a faithful Sunday school teacher and he was a faithful, uh, you know, everything else growing up. You watch that faithfulness and you watch that development. And that's a glorious thing. So, like a father son work project, Paul and Timothy slaved together in the gospel ministry. He's a co author of this epistle. Going back to Philippians 1 1, they slaved together in the gospel ministry. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. I don't think I did very many father-son projects with my dad. I held the flashlight a lot because I was horrible with tools, but at least I could hold a flashlight straight. All right. Psalm 55? 13? Is English Psalm 55, uh, Septuagint Psalm 53? 54? Okay. All right, thank you. So Timothy is an approved workman. He, you know his proven worth. His proven worth. His displayed approval. That's what it comes down to, displayed approval. And each one of us, this, this, is, uh, this is a key term, and each one of us, we're supposed to stand before God, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Every one of us needs to be an approved workman. And so the idea of mazo evaluation, the dokimas uh, adjective, the dokime expression, all of these uh, are significant because the, the proving comes in the service. The proving comes in the ministry. It's the, uh, in secular Greek, this word was used of, of uh, blacksmiths in testing the steel of their, of their weapon, testing the, the uh, quality of their weapon. And as they were forging a sword, they would have to docimazo the, the metal that they were forging. And if it doesn't pass the docimazo, they melted it down and started over. They were not going to put that sword into, into service. They weren't going to finish. Uh, you know, why, why waste time putting a, putting a hilt on it and all the rest of it if, uh, if the metal itself doesn't pass the test? And so docimazo is a wonderful expression, and it's what God does. Docimazo, by the way, is always for approval. It is always a stamp of approval, a test for approval. The purpose is to approve, and God, that's why He tests us. It stands in contrast with perazzo. That's what Satan does. Satan is always tempting us, never for our approval, but always for our, our downfall. Satan's trying to trip us up so that he can accuse us, and, and that's his prime activity. God never perazzo's anybody. God himself cannot be tempted, and he never tempts anybody. He is never tempting for, for uh, rejection or downfall, but he's always testing for approval. And it's, it's useful to study these terms, and it's actually a, a kind of a neat way that Satan will tempt, and God permits it, because God then uses it for his own testing process. So while Satan is tempting, God is testing for approval, testing to evaluate and say, look, look how approved my son is. And so uh, just a handful of these expressions. Dokimazo used 22 times, dokima seven times, and dokime seven times. So what I put on the screen is just a, a really a, a, a thin sampling of this. I recommend you look at all of the "docimazo" applications as well as the perazo applications, testing and tempting to see the uh, the contrast. But back in chapter one, it says, you may approve, this is why we need to grow, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. If we're going to approve the excellent things, we're applying the standard of the Word of God in order to approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. I don't know if you often think of it in these terms or not, but what you do, the things, the the behaviors you you, uh, engage in, the activities you engage in, and uh, anything you do is, uh, is a declaration of what you have found approval with. What you, you obviously approve what you do, that's why you're doing it. And so uh, when, when the, the Word of God says, apply the Word of God as your standard in order to approve the things that are excellent, if you can't take the criteria from Bible doctrine and, and approve the things that are excellent, then why are you doing it? If the standard of the Word of God says, that's not excellent, that's not approved, then uh, that should be a, a big red warning flag for all of us in our behavior and the things that we choose to then do. 1 Thessalonians two four. Verse 3 says, Our exhortation has not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. And so here's the approval. This is why again, before don't lay hands on a man too hastily, make sure that God has approved him, that his proven character has, has been exhibited for all to, to bear witness. Because if you've been placed in the, in the ministry of the Word of God, an evangelism ministry, a pulpit ministry, any, any ministry of the Word of God, that's a trust, to be entrusted with the gospel, approved by God, so we speak. And uh, that helps keep the uh, things objective. That helps keep the, uh, the pastor on track as well, because he's not trying to be a people pleaser. He's not trying to kowtow to the flock or, or, or tickle ears, because it's not their approval to put him in the ministry. It's God's approval to put him in the ministry. God's the one that he has to answer to. Jesus Christ is the one he has to stand before as an under-shepherd, and, uh, and uh, he answers to the good, great, and the chief shepherd in that accountability. All right, 1 Timothy 3.10. A lot of these verses have been on my heart lately anyway because I'm going to Kiev next week and taking part in an ordination there. Oleg Lazinski and that's, I'm just thrilled and honored. Like I can't begin to tell you. So we have um, the overseers in verses 1 through 7. We have the deacons in verses 8 through 13. And verse 10 says, These men must also first be tested. They must be documento-evaluated. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So you don't take somebody that just got saved yesterday and say, hey, you want to be a deacon? You watch what they do. You watch how they serve. You attest them in, uh, in faithful uh, opportunities prior to deacon service. And if they are indeed faithful, then uh, having been tested, they can uh, begin their deacon ministry. And then all of us, of course, in 2 Timothy 2.15, that's why we're here. You came to Bible class this morning because you want to be equipped. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved, docimazo, to be approved to God as workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You stand before the Father approved as workman. All right, so that's what Timothy is, and we can appreciate that. What else do we see here? Faith. (laughs) Faith. As soon as I see. It's kind of an interesting thing. I hope to send uh, and I hope to come myself also. But he says, therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. And so really, there's, what's described here in these verses is the walk of faith that Paul is, is living out and that he's modeling for us to learn from as well. We walk by faith, not by sight. But yet, while we're walking by faith, we still wait until we do see what God shows us by faith. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a nice tandem in this. And I wanted to express that here in point four. Faith equips the believer to operate hopefully apart from seeing. So you can still walk by faith even if you don't see what the outcome is going to be or you don't see the reason for it. Even if you don't see, even if it makes no sense to you why you're doing what you're doing, you know that God has told you to do it, so you're walking by faith. And so this is, uh, this is our joy. Faith is a response to doctrinal clarity, removing all doubt. These are principles, and I, and I hope we, we grab onto these. So when he says, as soon as I see, this indicates that Paul's decision has already been made pending a last moment adjustment as per the will of Jesus Christ. Alright? So as soon as I see means he's already made up his mind. I hope to send Timothy to you shortly, as soon as I see, indicating his decision's already been made pending a last moment adjustment as per the will of Jesus Christ. And these things, I think, are useful for us. Romans 8:24 For in hope we have been saved but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he has already sees. <laughs> you know, if you already see it, then it's not hope anymore. Right? If you if you already see it, if it's already happened, see? You know, like asking Sharon to marry me? I hope she says yes. Okay, well. Yeah, since that was 29 years ago or 28 years ago. A long time ago. Doing the math real quick. All right, 1991, 28 years ago, next week. All right. But how dumb would it be to say, oh, I hope she says yes. See, once it happens or once you see it, then it is what it is, right? And so, um, yeah, who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And so this is our joy to engage in that. And faith allows us to do this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith empowers us to operate hopefully apart from seeing. 2 Corinthians 4, more uh, faith. And I think we get this. 2 Corinthians four eighteen, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The only way you can look at the unseen things is to look with faith. Otherwise, without faith, you can't see the unseen things. You're just like an unbeliever, not equipped to uh, see the invisible realm. Um, of course, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, not the substance of things not seen. Now, all of that is true. So then what happens when we finally do see it? Does it stop being faith at that point? No, it's still faith. Okay, it's still faith. Even when we do start seeing it, now it's not hope anymore, but it's still faith even when we do see it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That faith is made stronger when we do see it. We don't have to see it to have faith, but when we do see it, faith is made stronger. So faith is a response to doctrinal clarity. Romans ten seventeen. Faith is a response to doctrinal clarity. And I don't want us to abuse these terms. I think they get abused. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If if you've got faith from some other source than that, I would redefine the term and say I wouldn't use. I'm not comfortable using faith in that respect. Okay, and that's just I want to be clear on the terms. You could be hopeful, you could you could want something to happen, for example, but unless you are convicted by the Word of God and are trusting in God's faithful promise, then your wishes, your desires, your hopes and expectations are not faith. Okay? And that's just a, a, an aspect, okay? I think um, people use that term, say, well, I just, I just believe, you know, this is what's going to happen. I believe that Austin Bible Church is going to double our budget in 2020 from what we have in 2019. Really? Okay. You believe that. I think you hope that or you want that or I would, I would be resistant of using the word believe in that capacity because I can't point to a Bible verse that God says that's going to happen. Okay? Now I believe the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and will be caught up together with the air because I can claim the, the passages of Scripture that teach the rapture doctrine and I can believe that. I can walk by faith and accept that. But if it's not in the Word of God, then it's not because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. I think it's different from a personal conviction. It's different from from an an expectation or an anticipation. I'm just being personally, you, you do whatever you want, keep using the words you want, but I recommend if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, let's stop using believe so loosely and let's limit believing to the promises that God has made in the Scriptures. And let's find other English words like hope or expect or really, really want something to happen if, it's, if it doesn't have a verse in the scripture to guarantee it is going to happen. Okay. Um, so for example, giving the gospel to a guy and witnessing to him for, for a year, two years, three years and saying, I really believe that he's close. Well, I don't have a Bible verse that tells me the day he's going to get saved. So I could, be under a, I could be under a conviction, I could be under, a, but it's not faith, that's what I'm saying. It's not faith if I'm not claiming a promise or citing something that's been revealed to me in the Word of God. All right. Romans 14. So you see that in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 14. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. That means you're examining the scriptures, you're applying the scriptures. If it's meat sacrifice to idols, if it's drinking, if it's dancing, if it's whatever it is, different believers come to different convictions based upon their study of the word of God and the application they are going to make. This chapter is talking about meat sacrifice to idols, but we can apply it in any realm of what are called the doubtful things or what are called the discretionary will of God. And so don't confuse the issues, the non-issues, with the real issues because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy by the Holy Spirit. So uh, come to a conviction and do so on the basis of faith. So uh, verse 19 says, "...we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another." Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. You might have enough doctrine to know enough, but you may not walk that way, and you may walk in a way that you should know better because this is going to cause your brother to stumble. And yeah, you've got a relaxed mental attitude over a subject, but he's got an unrelaxed mental attitude over a subject that really bothers them. And what are you going to do? Flaunt it? You're going to throw it in their face? You're going to say, "Hey pal, grow up, get some doctrine, you know, quit judging me, or are you going to function in love and and identify the weaker brother that you've got to uh, you've got to be be careful with you've got to be gentle around, so it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles if If this is going to make him stumble, then I don't want to do it in fact i'll never do it again if it's going to make him stumble, why would I do that? This then becomes the issue, and realizing. In Corinth, <laughs> that temple was the Aphrodite temple with a thousand priestesses. And, and maybe, my, I'm su- my suspicion is, there were members of that church that came out of that background. They got saved. And, and yet, how comfortable do you think they're going to be eating the meat that's coming from that place that they used to, used to work in, right? Used to worship in, used to, you know, back in their unbelieving days, they're going to have huge hang-ups over, over all of that. Can we have some kind of compassion and, and, and you know, awareness of what they're, uh, what they're struggling with? And so uh, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So have a faith conviction based upon the approval of, uh, of the standard of the Word of God. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. See, that's why wishful thinking is not faith. That's why, well, maybe, I uh, hope this is okay. That's not faith. You've got to come to a conviction and proceed forward on a faith basis. That way, man, that way uh, you're, you're blessed. You're happy. You're protected. There's a, there's a, a layer of, uh, of uh, grace that can then follow you in that decision because uh, Satan can't uh, tempt you with the, uh, as he loves to do, Satan loves to throw those little questions in there and cause you to start doubting. Ooh, did I make a right decision? Oh, was that bad? Was that right? Ooh, you know. So when you proceed forward on doubt instead of faith, then Satan's got a fertile ground there to really start twisting that knife in there and start saying, you made the wrong choice. That That wasn't right. You're out of the will of God. And then you're left fretting, thinking, well, hmm, maybe I am because you didn't make it on a faith basis. You're vulnerable then to to the uh, the the what if scenarios that Satan can throw at you because you did not proceed on a faith basis. So he who doubts, in other words, just going forward and hoping for the best when you don't have doctrinal clarity, that's not walking by faith. He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Even a good thing can be sin because it's not by faith. Whatever is not by faith is sin. All right. So, pending a last moment adjustment, as per the will of God. Philippians two twenty three, Hebrews twelve two. You know, he sets that race before you. That's his purpose. You know, you, you, were, you were getting ready to make that left-hand turn and then all of a sudden you get to that point in the race and the, the racetrack is pointing to the right instead of to the left. And they're that's the direction my race is going? I didn't want to go that way. Well, that's His good pleasure. He's the one that sets our race, the race that's set before you. You don't set your own race before you. He sets the race before you. And so um, this is our, our blessing as well. Fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Perfecter, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's our pattern. Jesus exhibited We're supposed to follow. Jonah. <laughs> Here's a hero for you. And Jonah, of course, um, he knows what's going to happen. He gets to become a great big I told you so. He didn't want it to happen. Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it and there he made a shelter for himself, sat under the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. (laughs) You know, well he knows it's going to happen but he wants to go out there and he wants to see it happen. He's not walking by faith, okay? Even, even when he says, I told you so, he is, he is three kinds of carnal right now. And um, God is going to have to rebuke him. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? He's going to be rebuked in this. What a story. All right. Anyway, then this, this tree grows up. He's happy about that. Then the worm comes and eats the tree. Not happy about that. The sun comes up. Not happy about that. So the sun came up in verse 8 and pointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Jonah was so suicidal. I think he, when he threw himself in the ocean, that was a suicide attempt. And here he is again. He's wishing he was dead. So God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant?" <laughs> you know? And so here's the thing. You're, you're waiting to see. Waiting to see. We're not slaves to what we see. We're walking by faith. I think that's an important point. All right, the last bit here then, point five. Even before Timothy's mission, Paul considered it necessary to return Epaphroditus to Philippi. Even before Timothy's mission. So he's waiting to send Timothy until he sees how it turns out with him. But prior to that, he's going to send Epaphroditus. And this is necessary because they were upset. All right, Philippians 2, 25 through 30. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now he was most likely, in fact, I think we can guarantee, he was the courier for the scroll. That he was carrying the scroll that we're reading now called Philippians. That uh, when he said, I thought it necessary to send to you uh, Epaphroditus. That's somebody, it can't be Timothy. It's got to be somebody else handing them a scroll that says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. Okay? So it's got to be some, and it's clearly, I think it's Epaphroditus here. Um, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your apostle and minister to my need. Where it says messenger in there, it's the noun apostolos. It's the noun apostle. And uh, the Philippi had sent him forth as an apostolic representative of their church to minister to the Apostle Paul. So to return to you, Epaphroditus, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. And this is where we have all those back and forth trips that's spoken of. Because they had heard that Paul was in prison. So they sent Epaphroditus with the money to minister to him while he was in prison. And then they heard that he was sick. Well, how did they hear that he was sick? There's word that got back to Philippi that Epaphroditus made it with the funds, but now he's sick. And then they were distressed by that. He was longing for you and uh, all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So he heard that they heard (laughs) that he was sick. And again, all of those, that's every one of these is is a journey. Either from Philippi to Rome, impossible, or Philippi to Ephesus, much more likely. All this back and forth, the communication that was involved. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have had sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. All right, so he's going to return Epaphroditus to Philippi. There's a lot to unpack from this. We had subpoints A through F, and we'll probably run out of time, but we'll see. All right. Epaphroditus had five titles. Brother, Fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. And that word messenger is apostolos. Five titles here for Epaphroditus. Paul is speaking very fondly of Epaphroditus. Uh, he's not a younger man. He's not a man under training. He's, a, he's an older man. He's a man that's equipped, a man that was already uh, serving in Philippi, came from Philippi to serve Paul. Uh, he didn't come to get seminary training. And he was one that Paul really would like to keep with him. But no, it would be better if he sent him back. Paul wants to keep them, but for their sake he sends them back. So a brother, fellow worker, that's a soon, soon ergos, a fellow soldier, is a soon uh, stratiotes, messenger, apostolos. Does that, does that mean he was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He was a gifted apostle? No. He was a local church representative. An apostle of Philippi. Representing Philippi. Minister, liturgos, minister to my need, a liturgical servant to my need. So not only did he provide the funds, but he remained there to liturgically serve Paul's need. This is not doulos, it's not diaconos, it's liturgos. It's a priestly language. It's an expression that speaks of uh, sacrificial offerings. A liturgos, a priestly servant minister to my need. As an apostolic messenger, Epaphroditus was commissioned to bring Paul's financial support from Philippi. That does not make him a gifted apostle. He's not an apostle of the Lamb. His name's not written on a foundation stone in the New Jerusalem. But he is their apostle. As a server minister, Epaphroditus performed his priestly ministrations on Paul's behalf. We actually find out that that financial gift in chapter 4, it's used in priestly languages, called a sweet-smelling savor. And he's ministering these priestly ministrations, what we're learning about in Hebrews. so what we're learning about in, in our priesthood in Christ, how we enter within the veil, how we function in our priesthood. We are ministering. You know, anytime you give the gospel, you're ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. That's Romans 15, 16. We've got to talk about this. The conclusion to Hebrews in chapter 13 spells out the sacrifices that we bring in our our Melchizedek priesthood. But ministering as a priest, Romans 15, 16. Ministering as a priest. I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God, see, repetition is good. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, in other words, liturgicaling—that's not a word. Okay, and and you know some churches are liturgical churches, and and uh, it, maybe you have a background with that, right? Uh, you grew up in a liturgical church, and so they have all the colored robes and all the Advent season, and they've got all the and, and, and much of the ritual is repeated again and again and again. In fact, the liturgy is, is replicated in, across the denomination in various places. So, a liturgical church. We are not a liturgical church. But the, the word liturgical is useful. And uh, the Greek word, and as it's used in the Old Testament, as it's used for priest, priestly service. Okay? Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable. So you give the gospel. The guy gets saved. What is that? Well, that new believer then is your sacrifice. You're offering that up to God. I'm teaching a Bible class. You're my sacrifice. This is my offering before the Lord. Anything you're doing, Sunday school, nursery, changing diapers for the glory of Jesus Christ, okay? that sweet-smelling savor in your priestly ministry to the Lord. All right. That my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1, seven, Hebrews 8.2, priestly ministry. I think we understand that. His longing and distress became a circumstance for Paul's mandatory action. Mandatory action. You come to a point where you think, okay, I have to. I thought it necessary. Whether it was absolutely necessary or not, Paul considered that it was. It wasn't a seem or suppose, but it was a considered thoughtful conclusion. He thought it necessary. When you, get, when you come to a conviction of a have to, and you say, all right, I have to, I have to do this. Then you're under the conviction that the New Testament speaks of. That becomes useful as well. A considered thoughtful conclusion. That exercise too, by the way, I hope we recognize sometimes you can come to a conclusion and everybody around you is going to disagree. (laughs) You know, Paul was set to get to Jerusalem and he had prophets coming to him like Agabus and the prophetess daughters of Philippi and everybody in his traveling team was saying, Paul, don't go. But he was under conviction. He was convinced, no, I have to go. Okay, well then, what's our duty? We just say, okay, Lord, Thy will be done. And we we pray for them and leave them in the hands of God. Although the Apostle Paul had power to heal, and we see him do these healings in different places, Epaphroditus was among several instances where divine miraculous healing was left to God rather than the Apostle to achieve. And it's curious to me that it wasn't just an absolute gift. You can't just turn it on and use it whenever you want. To heal anybody you want to heal. You know, and does, does any gift work like that? Can I pastor anytime I feel like pastoring? Or does my gift only function when the Holy Spirit empowers it, when the Lord leads it, when the Father produces the effects? Are there occasions when uh, it's not a shepherding venue or it's not a, uh, a God's not going to turn on my spiritual gift? Why do we think healing could just automatically use anytime, anywhere? Anyway, we know um, he had mercy on him here. Um, His instructions given to Timothy to drink a little wine for his frequent stomach ailments. Well, why do that if Paul can just heal you? Or uh, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. That's the uh, expression that's used in 2 Timothy 4.20. Why did Paul leave Trophimus sick at Miletus? All right. Well, we're out of time. Father, thank you for this review Thank you for the example of Timothy, and I do pray, Father, for the blessings that we have here in this training ministry, for, uh, for men and women that are exploring their spiritual gifts, that are seeking the uh, biblical information that will equip those gifts, and Father, looking to, uh, to our Lord to open those doors of ministry. I pray, Father, that we would be humble before you each step of the way, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, Amen.